You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 1st, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hoo-ha! And Evan <laughs> Bernstein. We're back. We are indeed Evan, back, back from... home. From Nexus. Ah, feels good. Feels yes. like we've been away from doing a regular show for a long time. Oh my God, right? I know. That was the longest couple weeks. Well, it's because we recorded like, what, five shows or something <laughs> when we were at Nexus? <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. It was really fun. It was my first time. That's right. Yeah, first time doing the skeptical extravaganza with Kara, and that was awesome. Oh gosh, yeah. always fun. That shows those of you who don't know, the extravaganza is a... Uh, we we put on a improv stage show where we do a series of bits and there's a lot of audience participation and we wrote this show actually for the Australia trip two and a half years ago. Yeah, this is the second time we've done it at Nexus, uh, and we change it enough each time so it's not the same show. You know, mm-hmm. the content's always fresh. <laughs> I'm still laughing about. Bob's inability to get <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption. You had to bring that up. <laughs> so we had do to bring that up. We do a bit that George Robb came up with called Freeze Frame. And what happens is one person gets picked to put the headphones on so they can't see or hear what everybody else is doing. And then George will tell the rest of us, all right, guys, the movie is Shawshank Redemption. Take a still life that represents the movie. Like, so we all got to arrange ourselves to illustrate the movie to the person. So when they turn around, take the headsets off, they can see us and they have to look at what's going on and try to figure out, okay, it's this movie or that movie. But they're supposed to think out loud because that, that's the fun part for the audience. So we had the Shawshank Redemption and Bob completely mind blanked. And it got to the point where George was literally going, Bob, Bob, I'm trying to, to redeem you here. I'm trying to redeem you here, right? Then what did he say? Something about shanking Get, get some redemption. Well. He didn't even say redeem. He literally said, said Bob, redemption. There will be no redemption. redemption. And, yeah, if you yeah said, he that. said, like, do you feel like you're being shanked? But in, in my defense, <laughs> in my defense, all right, there's a few <laughs> points here that need to be made. Uh, first of all, I saw the movie once 10 years ago. The, the two scenes that you enacted for me, I did not remember at all. They, they were they were me- meaningless Things to yeah, me. I mean, they I, were I don't only iconic scenes. Why would you remember them? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't remember a 10 year old scene of him climbing through a tunnel of shit. It's just it's not in my head. I remember, oh. I remember the poster on the wall. I remember him going in uh, in lockup. I remember a few things. But after 10 years, I mean, sorry, those those things escaped me. But it was a funny bit, I guess. So I guess I took one for the team, bastards. That's that's <laughs> the point is to make fun of you because it is funny. <laughs> so. One thing interesting thing that happened at Nexus was uh, the last talk of the conference was given by a journalist, a science journalist, John Horgan, who writes for Scientific American, uh, who has given good talks in the past, uh, not at our conference, but you know, on other venues, and has you know wrote the book The End of Science, and you know seemed like an interesting person to have talk at the conference. But he decided that he was going to talk on with his belief that that we are all, that skeptics are doing it wrong. He wrote about uh, his talk in Scientific American, calling it uh, Dear Skeptics, Bash Homeopathy and Bigfoot Less, Mammograms and War More. Um, and, you know, about huh. 30 skeptics wrote articles replying to him 
in my <laughs> in my opinion, completely deconstructing his article, which he you know then he doubled down and said, "Oh, see, I must have really touched a nerve there," which I hate when people do that. But um, I did write about it myself. So here's the thing: I mean, he's basically is not really aware of what skeptics do. So. And he he kind of admitted that. You know, he didn't like do any kind of thorough survey or evaluation of what skeptics are doing. So he's just basing his whole premise is based upon his just naive, subjective sense of what we do without really having any familiarity with mainstream, you know, skeptical activism. He didn't do his homework and it was a straw man. Yeah. So like for example, he said that um you know, we spend too much time attacking what he thinks of us as the quote unquote soft targets like Bigfoot and homeopathy. As if there, as if like tackling homeopathy is unimportant. Yeah. It's only a multi billion dollar industry that uh, causes some people to have their health harmed even to the point of death. Um and it's complete and utter fraud and nonsense. Yeah, we should nobody should bother spending their time criticizing it or explaining to the public what it actually is and why it's wrong. So I think you know denigrating going after things like pseudoscience and fraud is ridiculous. That's what we do. But also he said like we don't go after important topics and that's not true. Um, we go we yeah. go after a lot I think of very meaty socially current relevant topics. I mean, you know, Come on, vaccine denial, global warming, GMO foods. GMO. You know, yeah. These are all things that, that we tackle. And often. And and often. but Regularly. He says like we don't go after pseudoscience within mainstream science like uh, string theory. Again, anybody who listens to the show would know all of this is not true. We've talked about is string theory science. We went after you know Neil deGrasse Tyson and his panel for you know talking about – uh, the the simulated universe. We go after you know these big ideas in science that we think are either not quite scientific or there's something wrong about it. He actually had the gall to say like, oh, you don't you don't question the the efficacy of screening mammography. So in my post, I said, all right, here's just type in those words, you know, like, <laughs> uh, mammography and science based medicine. Here's forty hits for you, you know. <laughs> I mean, like huh. like he was unaware of the existence of science based medicine. So like the things he says we don't do, they're, it's like a regular basis on, on that yeah. block. Well, so the bottom line was it seemed like he had picked his conclusion and then kind of backfilled his data to fit what he wanted to say. Yeah, he had a narrative and he didn't want to be confused by the facts. He was trying to be clever <laughs> sort of in a way. And we've dealt with this before with people challenging the skeptics for not being skeptical of their own skepticism, right? As if that's profound, as yeah. if that's never been – we've never been challenged or never never dealt with this ourselves or never looked at it before. When actually, I know for all, entire the entire 20 years that I think we've been doing this, it's been there from the get-go and we've never – yeah. shied away from it certainly we've addressed it many times he just came totally unprepared i mean he had yeah. no business given the speech that he did. He brought a knife to a gunfight but then he says that <laughs> we, we have to go after the important issues like war and then he went on a rant you know about how like war is the biggest problem and the tolerance of war again his premise was that their tolerance or nihilism about war is rooted in what he calls the deep roots theory of war that Humans are a warlike species. It has deep cultural and evolutionary roots. And his position is that, no, it's actually a recent cultural invention, and therefore we can stop war. And that was based on what? 
Yeah, exactly. So a he tiny didn't, study. He didn't really do a good job of. He claimed it was like overwhelming conclusion that the deep roots theory is wrong. And Stephen Pinker replied to him, and in my opinion, destroyed him. Uh, but you know, anyway, and the, and even if the other thing is that you know he cites Stephen Pinker as an example, but even Pinker, I mean, did he read his book, The Better Angel of Our Nature? I think it was what it was called. He's you know, Pinker is saying violence is decreasing over time. We can end war. We can transcend, you know, the tribalism and whatever it is in our makeup that that, that creates war. Uh, so his like his premise was wrong on multiple levels. But again, also think about it. This is um, a, a specific logical fallacy that I actually wrote about specifically. So I wrote like two articles here called the fallacy of relative privation, which is when you say, oh, this isn't important to do anything about because there's this bigger problem that you need to solve first. You know, it's like, uh, why are we sending a man to the moon when there's still world hunger or whatever? Why anything when there's kids dying of cancer? It's ridiculous. You know, it's just a, it's a complete logical fallacy. So yet what a lot of people pointed out is like, really? I mean, really? You think that we need to end war? We need world peace before we could turn our attention to any other problem that plagues society? It's ridiculous. It's just a totally absurd position. I also disagree with his overall premise about soft targets versus hard targets and the subjects that we tackle. Look, things like Bigfoot and UFO, while they may seem, you know, kind of old hat to us, and we've talked about it so many times as experienced skeptic, it's still a gateway for a lot of people who are new to yeah, this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a broader consequence if you get more people thinking rationally and thinking scientifically about the world than if you hammer on these really big issue topics in an echo chamber. Exactly. I agree. I mean, I would argue that we are doing more to end war by making the world a more critical thinking place than somebody sure. banging on, as you say, like against war. And that's what we do. I think, you know, that's, this is what we do well. This is where our, our interests and our talents lie, trying to, again, teach people critical thinking. And that has lots of downstream positive effects, in my opinion. But, you know, this is, it's a, a lot of people have come at us with that criticism. Like, oh, why are you focusing on Bigfoot? You should be talking about my issue that I care about. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, we're giving people skills. You know, we're giving them critical thinking skills, nunchuck skills. And <laughs> but it's unreasonable. And to, yeah, those will apply to lots of things, including the things you care about. I don't know. It's a really weird idea to be telling a community of people that are probably in the, you know, few hundred thousand globally. You could classify that many people maybe as skeptics. Like he wants all of us to become activists against war. Like why would why would all of us need to do that, first of all. And secondly, that's impossible. Yeah. You can't ask an entire an entire group of people that belong to you know, in a, this global group to all focus on the same exact thing. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. Or that ev everything else is trivial by nature. Yeah, doesn't it feel a bit that's like wrong. backseat driving? It's a little like, okay, then you do something about that. Like, why are you mad at us? Yeah, so a lot of people said, it's well, why are you spending your time criticizing skeptics when you should be ending war? <laughs> yeah, nice. It's like, come mm -hmm. on. Also, a lot of people pointed out, and I agree with this, that he's basically trolling us. He really didn't engage with us. And he didn't really make an attempt to understand what our actual position is. He just sort of dropped a bomb, was sort of expecting a response, and then reveled in the response, you know, just the attention that it brought to him without really engaging with the counterpoints 
that that we brought to him. That's what trolls do. And, you know, it was just it, it was disappointing. Just the quality was extremely disappointing. <sighs> oh, well, but it was it, it did spark, as I said, like 20, 30 articles writing about, well, what do we do as skeptics? What are we doing? Yeah. Why do we do what we do? So we, we you know, did the, made the best we could of it. I have to say, I, I see a similar argument when I do um, a lot of sort of science communication and science literacy activism around the way that scientists spend money. You know, you'll, you'll see some new study that is a very specific study done in a very specific kind of lab. And you'll see a very similar argument coming from the general public that's like, why would you, you be spending tax dollars on that when we haven't cured cancer or when we haven't stopped Alzheimer's? And I think it, it's... I see a lot of parallels in this kind of argument, which yeah. is you can't, you know, try to kill a, a fly with a nuclear bomb. You have to spread your resources out. There's so many unintended consequences of focusing your efforts in a lot of different places. And it requires the strengths and skills of many, many different kinds of people to solve many kinds of problems. I think that the world wouldn't be a much worse place if everybody focused on the same very small number of global issues. I agree. Say that a, it, a lot. Like let a thousand lights shine, right? Let everyone do yeah. what they want to do that is that drives them, that gets them up in the morning, that they find is interesting and important to them. And you know, yeah, we absolutely do have to allocate our resources rationally, obviously. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a finite amount of funding, like the NIH for for healthcare research, sure, they make decisions about what's worth researching, but they also spread the money around because you never know what the downstream effects are going to be of, of research. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, as it were, and uh, just you know, just pr proportion the funding to the magnitude of the problem, the number of people it affects, and you know, and that that's already taken into consideration. That's that's perfectly yeah. reasonable. Right. And it's just a naive position to assume that that hasn't been thought through. <laughs> yeah, right. He also he completely <laughs> missed all the reasons why we do things. He assumed that the only reason that we would right. address an issue is because that issue has immediate importance. And that's not true. There's tons of reasons why we address issues that have nothing to do with the importance of that issue. I don't give a rat's ass if Bigfoot exists, to be honest with you, because I think he doesn't <laughs> exist. It's not that it doesn't keep me up. My, oh, my God, does Bigfoot, Bigfoot yeah, exist? Right. Or, yeah, or like, oh, somebody believes in Bigfoot. Who cares if somebody believes that there's Bigfoot out there, really? It's just – it's right. an well, interesting topic. <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting teaching opportunity about the nature right. of evidence, the nature of eyewitness mm -hmm. testimony, the you know the logical fallacies, the way people come right. to wrong conclusions. How experts can be fooled. Yeah, the, the gullibility of, of the media, all that stuff. We could, You could learn all of that off of any one of these silly topics. And that's what we do. That's what, cause that's what we're really doing is teaching critical thinking, not sweating ghosts and ghost hunters. You know, who cares? <laughs> that's right. And, and there happens to be, you know, 500 shows on Bigfoot on television, yeah. if you haven't noticed lately. So, you know, obviously it's yeah, right, in right. the minds of a lot of people. Right, so right. for us to ignore it entirely, I think would be kind of derelict yeah. of us, frankly. Yeah. After the Bigfoot skeptic meme was created, I actually searched all of my neurological blog articles and I think like, I out of the 1,500, 1,600 articles I've written in the last 10 years, two were on Bigfoot. And oh, they were wow, both you're... a reaction to news items like the DNA testing that came out, like very yeah. specific things that came out in the news. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're so predictable, You're Steve. obsessed. Yeah. You're obsessed, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's move on. Bob. 
<laughs> Who's this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science? This week in uh, Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm going to talk about Andrew Benson, who was a plant biologist who co-discovered a key mechanism of photosynthesis and yet did not co-share the Nobel Prize for the discovery. Um, this was an interesting one because um, – I often cover women, obviously, who were ignored, especially in in the past. Um, it was much, you know, it's not great now, but it was worse in the past. They were passed over for Nobel prizes, jobs, education, even salaries. So it actually was a little bit jarring to to, to see that this this happens. This has happened to men as well, and it does, just not nearly as often as women. After World War II, it was realized that the newly available radioactive isotope carbon fourteen could be a boon to certain types of research. Melvin Calvin, a UC Berkeley chemistry professor at what was to become the Lawrence Livermore, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, hired Andrew Benson, who was, uh, who was an expert not only on organic chemistry, but also photosynthesis and carbon-14. That's exactly what, uh, what Calvin needed. So Benson became the first to use radioisotopes to examine biochemical pathways. And together, Calvin and Benson and other collaborators did seminal work on how CO2 functions in plants. And this was between 1946 to 1954. So specifically, what they found was a, a discovery that people have been thinking about for literally centuries. Um, they found the series of reactions that plants use CO2 for in photosynthesis. Um, this was a huge, huge mystery for a really long time. And now even more specifically, uh, these reactions convert carbon dioxide into organic molecules used to build new cells. So that's obviously a key, key discovery. Now, this pathway is frequently called the Calvin cycle. Uh, and in 1961, Calvin got the Nobel Prize in chemistry, but not for Benson. Uh, Dr. Victor Vacquier, a professor emeritus of marine biology at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, said uh, regarding Benson, he should have received the Nobel Prize for it. There really was no reason to just give it to Calvin, in my opinion. Um, but at least, though, the cycle uh, is being referred to increasingly as the Calvin-Benson cycle, which I think is very appropriate. They're even Sometimes they even throw in a third name for uh, another guy that, um, that, that contributed uh, a lot. James Basham, right? I think it was, yeah. So remember Andrew Benson? Mention him to your friends, perhaps when discussing how ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase catalyzes CO2 fixation. What? Fixation? Yeah, baby. Would, it's a bit extreme. Yeah. I haven't right? talked about that in weeks. <laughs> Bob, did you come across any discussion of how Calvin edged out Benson for the, for the, the Nobel and the credit for that research? I, I did not. I did not. Calvin was um, the, he was the primary. He was the one that act, that actually hired him. So maybe in some sense, uh, you know, he he was considered to be the boss kind of. A, a, you know, I don't know, you know, what their titles were, or like what their salaries were, or anything like that. So perhaps that played into it. But of all the research I did, nobody came up with anything specific as to why he he got it and he was overlooked. I couldn't find any dirt on why that happened. Yeah, maybe just typical academic credit grabbing. Yeah. That's typical, okay. Steve. Well, you know, like every human endeavor, yeah, egos and personalities are are often involved. And yeah, I mean, sort of mm -hmm. academics are sometimes famous for trying to make sure that their own credit is maximized. You know, yeah, because that's what they live and die by, right? That's their career. Mm -hmm. That's the currency, as it were. Okay, let's go on to some news items. This uh, first one is definitely the number one email 
that we got in the past week or so. So I knew I oh, had yeah. to talk about it. A lot of people like, oh, what do you guys think about this? We've talked in the past about the literature looking at whether or not there is any correlation between cell phone use and cancer, specifically no. brain cancer. And we, I think, oh, yes, we have. Yeah, we talked recently about a, uh, a study in Australia where they looked at 20 years of data and showing essentially no correlation between cell phone use and, and brain cancer. It's also very reassuring that if you just look at the absolute numbers of brain cancer over the last 20 years, that it's actually, it's not increasing. In fact, it's decreasing a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So if so there people were, are getting less cancer from cell phones now? Cell phone <laughs> decreases cancer. Yeah. So yeah, if cell phones were a significant risk factor for brain cancer, we you know in the last twenty years we went from zero cell phone use to almost ubiquitous cell phone use. You would think that there by now there'd be a massive even, increase, even with yeah. like a ten year delay. Yeah, there would there should be some massive increase just in the raw numbers, but there isn't. So that's very reassuring. Mm-hmm. So, but this is a, a new study uh, that is not looking at humans, right? It's not looking at epidemiological or ecological data. It's looking at rats. And oh boy. the the advantage of doing animal studies is that you can control for it, right? The downside of doing animal studies is that they're not people. Not humans. Yeah. 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 So let's take a look at this study. This study, you know, again, a lot of the reporting has been possible cell phone linked to cancer. A rat study launches new debate. Game-changing study links cell phone radiation to cancer. The worst ones are the ones that don't even mention that the study's in rats. And this was across the spectrum. Uh, in terms of news reporting, some sites did a really good job, I think, of reporting the data, but the ma- the mainstream, like the the average, was was pretty bad on this one, in my opinion. That what they did was they took rats and they put them into mo- multiple groups, either no exposure or th- exposure at three different doses. They started the exposure in utero, so when the when you know the rats were pregnant, and then they continued to expose them for two years. They they were basically put they were in like a cage that would contain or you know re- rebound the uh, the radio frequency waves and it was whole body exposure for nine hours a day and this was supposed to replicate heavy cell phone use wait nine hours a day for two years yes yeah like it's the cell phone is the size of a rat well well they, <laughs> yes. they, they, it's like yeah. not can't the, do that they, they, the they couldn't isolate they didn't it, use a cell phone <laughs> as a source of the radio frequency they were just they were just generating radio frequencies at different levels and but our cell phones only hold up to our heads or maybe men's junk who who were the rats talking to though <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the, the one, one major chamber. criticism of the study is that this is not a good simulation of even heavy cell phone use. I mean, nine hours a day, whole body exposure to pretty significant doses. And the doses were by body weight. Oh, I mean, it really would have been a, – that's a massive dose for a human is, is the bottom line. Well, what happened though? It was reported as showing that the rats who were exposed to the radiation had higher incidence of – uh, malignant glioma is a type of brain cancer, but also of schwannomers of the heart. Remember, this What's is whole a body schwa- experience. who? Yeah, Schwann cell is a, <laughs> Schwann- is a cell yeah. in the nervous system that insulates ner- axons, like it insulates the, cool. the nerves. Um, so they exist throughout the body. Uh, then the, they're basically the insulation cells of the peripheral nervous system. Is that, is that myelin? Yeah, exactly. They make the myelin. Okay. Okay. It's important shit. When you look at the data, it's really, really not impressive. 
the absolute numbers of animals developing these tumors is in the single digits. Uh, like each, in the, each exposure group, it's like one, two, three. The highest was six. Out of how many rats? Out of 90 rats in each group. Okay. Uh, but still, it's like one rat gets a tumor, and that's like statistically significant in that group. Uh, so whenever you're dealing with absolute numbers that are that small, it's always hard you know, to really um, make firm conclusions or to generalize, in my opinion. And also, the if you look at all – like for the schwannomas, if you looked at all of the schwannomas throughout the body, there was no statistically significant difference. There was only significant if you pull out just the heart. And then it was only significant in the male rats, not the female rats. Why? That is odd. Again. Yeah, why do you think yeah, that is? It's a red flag. It's a red flag. There is no reason to think that that would be the yeah. case. Yeah, like when I wrote about this, I said, so this data, at least for the heart schwannomas, first of all, doesn't extend to other schwannomas elsewhere in the body. And it doesn't even extrapolate to female rats. What's the, prob- the probability that it's going to extrapolate to humans, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not putting my money on that. Yeah, all, there's been a lot of very specific criticisms as well, like the rats had kind of a shorter life expectancy and a higher tumor rate than the baseline you would expect. And maybe there, there you know, might have been ways about – you always have to worry about how, if you're treating the rats properly and are you introducing any artifacts. Also, there was an interesting artifact where the the exposed rats lived a little bit longer than the control rats. Uh-oh. So you could just as easily say that yeah. cell phones make the rats live longer. I mean that's as much yeah. of a reasonable conclusion from this data. Sure. Uh, that's the conclusion I'm going with. <laughs> the conclusion I'm going with is that this is noise. This yep. is just noise in the data. The researchers were kind of cherry picking a little bit. There, there are some you know, red flags that there may have been some artifacts in there. The oh, absolute effect sizes are very tiny, uh, and they're rats. You know, so we, and, you know the exposure rates we probably don't really translate to even I think even heavy cell phone use among humans. So, or even if they could induce it, sometimes I, I get this feeling when I when I read these types of articles. It reminds me of my concerns with sort of the American acceptance of the show MythBusters as science. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I don't think MythBusters, for example, is uh, I think it's a great show and it gets a lot of young kids interested in science. But what they do on the show MythBusters is not science. It's demonstration. What the, yeah. It's a demonstration. And what they'll often do is they'll try to bust a myth or try to understand a myth. They'll say, does uh, X cause Y? And then when they can't get X to cause Y under normal conditions, they're like, let's see how far we can push it until we force X to cause yeah. Y. And I think that's what I'm seeing here. So really, the headline isn't cell phones cause cancer. It's we figured out how to make cell phone radiation cause cancer potentially in a rat. Right. Yeah, which potentially, is totally different. Potentially. So I think potentially. Worst case scenario. What this study demonstrated is that it's biologically possible for non-ionizing radiation to affect cancer risk, which is interesting. It's admittedly interesting because there are still people who say that it's impossible. You know, by definition, mm. non-ionizing radiation is not strong enough to break chemical bonds. Therefore, it doesn't mutate DNA. Therefore, it doesn't cause cells to become cancerous. And therefore, what there's no mechanism. But, you know, biology is complex and there may be some unknown mechanism that we're not recognizing here. It's just not very yeah. plausible. I would put it in the very implausible box, not the impossible box. But some people will say, no, it's actually, there's no real, there's no mechanism here. So 
they're not too concerned about it. This study, the thing is, this study is not rock solid enough that we could say, okay, now we can say that RF, that radio frequency, can mm-hmm. cause a biological effect like this. I don't think we, this is robust enough to conclude that. It certainly isn't robust enough to conclude that cell phones, as they are being used in the real world, world are causing cancer. And it's not enough. By any stretch. Yeah, and it's not enough to trump all the epidemiological and ecological data showing that it isn't. So the headlines, I think, were completely overhyped. Right. This is just one rat study that's interesting, maybe, but until it gets replicated a couple of times, and you know that we're seeing a consistent result, and we're and all of the criticisms of this study are dealt with, I, I'm not worried about this at all. Yeah, it doesn't even necessarily warrant you know replication, right? It just seems well, to be I think mostly you, noise. You know, I think it warrants replication. I mean, I think that. We really want to prove really well that's, that cell phones are safe since we're, the, the use of it is so widespread. I get that. And even just to reassure the public, I, I'm pretty reassured by the existing data, but you know, I wouldn't be against getting even more reassurance. Keep in mind, you can never prove a negative, right? You can never prove that something is zero risk. All you could do is set an upper statistical limit on how much the risk can be. And the more data we get, the more we shrink that. That's fine. And I have no problem with that. With any time you want to collect more data and shrink that possible risk even further, great. That's perfectly fine with me. But Yeah, and I'd like to see this replicated because if if there is a way that these researchers potentially showed that non-ionizing radiation could even remotely potentially induce tumor growth, that's something that we should follow and we should try to understand sure. better. Absolutely. It's, it's not the bigger question of do cell phones cause cancer. It's holy crap. Is there a mechanism here that we didn't know before? That's interesting. Let's try and replicate yeah, that. Yeah, that alone is worth a replication. Again, I don't think we can conclude that from this study, but that's worth a replication. Yeah. yeah. All right, Kara, I think this next item, is also one in which there might be some hyped fear in the media. But you tell me, are bacteria becoming totally resistant? Ah! Bacteria actually are becoming totally <laughs> resistant, but oh, time what has panic. happened? Yeah, what has happened most recently in the media is not necessarily an example of that. You know, we talk a lot on SGU about how part of our job is to try and quell some of those fears around bad science reporting. There is some really good science reporting on this story and some not so good science reporting. That said, it's not the apocalypse yet. But there's another nail potentially in the coffin of uh, antibiotic resistance. So specifically what we're talking about this week, as you may have seen in the news, is colistin resistance. And colistin resistance is a little worrisome only because many people view colistin as a last resort antibiotic. It actually kind of stopped being prescribed in the 70s because most antibiotics are really safe and have really minimal side effects, maybe some in- intestinal kind of discomfort. Colistin has a lot of un- unpleasant side effects and there are other antibiotics in its place historically that could do the job just as well. So it's just not commonly prescribed anymore unless somebody is experiencing um, multi-antibiotic resistance. So let's break down what actually happened. Researchers at Walter Reed Hospital got a sample from a woman in Pennsylvania who had a urinary tract infection. UTIs are often caused by E. coli. Hers was no different, but hers seemed to be resistant to multiple classes of antibiotics, and they wanted to see how broad this resistance ran. So they pulled an isolate out of her, uh, out of her urine bacteria called MRSN388634. I'll say that once. It's not really that relevant anymore, but that is what we're calling this isolate in her um, in her E. coli. Turns out that isolate actually did contain 
a gene, a specific gene called the MCR1 gene. Now, the MCR1 gene is a little bit scary. And the reason the MCR1 gene is a little bit scary is because we've seen colistin resistance before. But generally speaking, the bacteria that's resistant to colistin is resistant because it contains an enzyme that's produced in the chromosomal DNA of the bacteria. And chromosomal DNA is generally well protected within a bacterium. It's deep inside. It's not in the nucleus. Bacteria don't have nuclei, but it's deep inside of the cell. Bacteria also have a type of DNA called plasmid DNA, which is kind of a naked single strand. It's on a round portion that's very easily swapped. Bacteria don't just share plasmids with, you know, parent cells and daughter cells, but they can also share plasmids uh, linearly sort of across a um, other bacteria species, same species or even different species. So this is where we see a lot of antibacterial resistance happening is with this plasmid shuffling. And the MCR1 gene specifically lives in a plasmid, which makes it much more worrisome. So now we're not just talking about colistant-resistant bacteria. We're talking about colistant-resistant bacteria that have their resistance gene present on a piece of DNA that's really easy to swap with other bacteria. And this Ooh. woman was found to have that gene. Now, it turns out that it wasn't really clinically significant for her because uh, a combination of antibiotics did annihilate her infection. She's perfectly healthy. She was able to go about her day. Her infection was not what we call pan-resistant, which means totally antibiotic resistant. There were antibiotics available to her that could clear up her E. coli, her, her urinary tract infection E. coli. But this was significant. And the reason so many outlets are reporting on it is because this is the first time that MCR1 was found in America. Now, in November of 2015, Chinese researchers found a similar case of colistin resistance. And then following that, Danish researchers also found colistin resistance in urinary tract infection E. coli um, involving that MCR or I'm sorry, MCR1 gene. We've also seen since this discovery, the the woman was actually sick in April and her her bacteria went to Walter Reed. Then her clinical case was published in the May 26th issue of Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy. Since then, we've even seen a blog post released by the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services announcing that they discovered colistin-resistant bacteria in a sample taken from the intestine of a pig here in America. So now we've got one clinical case, one agricultural case. So we do see that this colistin resistance is happening. We also see that that woman's clinical history showed that the, she hadn't left the country in the preceding Ooh. five months, which means that this was a domestic case. So it's out there somewhere else to be had. We haven't just exactly. figured out what other people have it. Exactly. She didn't pick it up internationally, or if she did, it was from another vector, like somebody came yeah. in from there, which means that there could be more people infected. Now, it turns out that this Pennsylvania woman's E. coli carried 15 genes for resistance to other antibiotics across two plasmids. There were seven on one and six on the so other. what does that mean? So- so that means that the specific DNA within her E. coli had the potential to share 15 other genes with local or um, nearby bacteria and, and cause those bacteria to also be antibiotic resistant. So 15 different drugs wouldn't work against her UTI, which is very dangerous. And it's approaching, approaching pan resistance. Not quite there yet, but 
There are two. And so that's why I think we have to kind of temper our, our responses to these publications, right? We see it's the last ditch effort. We can't do anything else. Like, yes, with these UTI bacteria, we're very, very close, but it does seem that there is some clinical availability still with, um, using multiple antibacteria, uh, antibacterial agents, antibiotics on these patients. The real fear, I think, is in the underreported case of two bacteria that we know about that are pan-resistant. And I'm not going to pronounce them well, but I'm going to try. That's Acinetobacter boamani, which is a gram-negative uh, coxobacillus, which can infect people with compromised immune systems, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a gram-negative rod-shaped bacteria, and that one's implicated in sepsis, and also it's very common in ventilator-associated pneumonia. Both of these are common hospital-acquired bacteria. You often hear about MRSA, which methicillin-resistant staph, which is dangerous. It's methicillin-resistant. But when we talk about hospital-acquired, quote, superbugs, two hospital-acquired superbugs actually are pan-resistant, meaning if you catch them, we cannot kill them. We have no drugs available to us to do so. So this is a worry. And I, I mean, I think the alarm bell should be sounded, but I think we need to understand what the cause for worry is. And of course, link this back to the conversation that we had just a few weeks ago on the show about what clinicians are starting to try to do and about how we as patients can try to take more responsibility in our course of treatment and only take antibiotics when we know that they're necessary. You know what I learned since we talked about this last time is that, and I didn't even think about this, in a lot of other countries, antibiotics are available over the counter. You can get yeah. over-the-counter antibiotics in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. And, uh, and in fact, sometimes uh, those antibiotics uh, are brought into the United States and sold over-the-counter you know, in like little shops and stores, you know. That's yeah. insane. They would change that immediately. Yeah. Why don't these countries adopt new policies? Well, there, there is some call for like tightening the over-the-counter regulations uh, in these countries. But <laughs> some call for a little right. tightening. We're doomed. <laughs> the bugs will win. We're trying to tweak oh, our antibiotic use and there it's available over-the-counter in other countries. Mm -hmm. So. It, this is a worldwide problem, and I think this is like this is a, a perfect topic for like the World Health Organization. I think this is like why the World Health Organization exists is for issues like this. All right, Evan, I, I understand that scientists learned one more amazing thing about bumblebees, as if they weren't amazing enough. As as we all know or should know by now, uh, flowers actually communicate with bees. This is true. If, if this were science or fiction, this one would be science. Uh, sure, flowers are very pretty. They have bright colors, which look good to people and bees. And they emanate odors, often pleasant odors. But those are only parts of the picture of the entire bee-flower relationship. Another part of the picture is that flowers emit electrical signals. And bees, among other pollinators, can pick up on these signals. For example, a flower emits one type of electrical signal when it is full of pollen, effectively inviting the bee in to come and take the pollen. But then it'll generate sort of a slightly different signal when it has no nectar, no pollen to be had. So this flower acts as sort of a transmitter. Now, as far as the bee is concerned, its ability to judge which flowers will provide the most nectar and which have already been plundered by other pollinators helps the bee use their energy more efficiently. So in the case of 
This relationship, the bee is the receiver to the flower's transmitter. And this was confirmed several years ago in a series of studies which verified this electrical relationship between pollen factories, flowers, and pollen distributors, the bees. And it was big science news back in 2013 because until that discovery was made, scientists had thought that detecting electric field, that the detect, let me try again. It was a big science news back in 2013 because until that discovery was made, scientists had thought that detecting electric fields was an ability limited to animals who live in the water or very moist environments since water can conduct electric currents. So for the better part of the last three, four years, scientists have known that bees can pick up the signals, but they could only speculate as to how the bees were able to pick up the electrical signals. That is until now. Dr. Gregory Sutton, a research fellow in the University of Bristol School of Biological Sciences, and his team have conducted a study published in the online journal. Kara, would you care to name the journal? <laughs> PNAS. PNAS, PNAS. <laughs> <laughs> then the paper is called Mechanosensory Hairs in Bumblebees Detect Weak Electric Fields. And the study suggests that electric fields can exert a physical force on a bumblebee's tiny body hairs and cause them to actually move. The hairs themselves move. They relay nerve signals to the brain of the bee in response. Dr. Sutton said, here I quote, We were excited to discover that bees' tiny hairs dance in response to electric fields, like when humans hold a balloon to their hair. A lot of insects have similar body hairs, which leads to the possibility that many members in the insect world may be equally sensitive to small electric fields. This paper is about bumblebees doing something that no one thought any terrestrial animal could do. This is an interesting study. They actually didn't know if it was the antenna. So they also tested the antenna. The antenna also move in response to a, an electrical field, but mm -hmm. there was no neuronal firing. There was, you know, the, there was no electrical response. Uh, but the, when the body hairs move, they moved more and they did produce a, a neurological response. So that clearly those are the ones that are sensing the electrical field, uh, which is really interesting. And, you know, the, the, that kind of receptor, basically a hair moves and it triggers a, a neuronal response. That's how our hearing works, right? The mm -hmm. sound waves vibrate the hairs and the movement – that's like, that's what a mechanosensory hair is. You know, the, the mechanical movement triggers electrical signals in the neuron. Uh, so it's basically the same thing. They're hearing the electrical fields basically. But how cool is it that it's not just that the bees can pick up – like it's not like – because the flowers smell, you know, obviously mm -hmm. flowers give off odor and the bees can smell that or whatever. Like nature is way more complicated than we know. There's depth to, to it. You know, they take a closer look at the way bees interact with flowers and the next thing you find out, there's this whole electrical communication going yeah. on that nobody had mm -hmm. any clue about. It's fascinating. Right. An extra level of efficiency in the entire pollinization process. Mm -hmm. we're, we're biased by our senses, right? We think of the world in the context of our senses, but – but bees, you know, animal, you know, insects especially, but other animals have a different sensory world. Be, you know, a lot of flowers, for example, are brightly colored in the ultraviolet, and we don't see them. But yeah, but yeah, but they're like giving off these incredible, you know, displays to insects who can't see them, like landing strips. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. And and here's another one. There's pollinate a, me. There's an electrical world out there that bees can see in a way, and. You know, we don't. And so it's, the world looks very different to them. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. well, plus, plus they, they have like 400 eyes, don't they? Well, they have – no. They uh, they have 
you know, the compound eye. Not what actually, that's not what everyone thinks it is. You know, the how you know how it's always d- displayed as like multiple images. That's not how. Yeah, it looking is. through a kaleidoscope or something. So they have a, a compound eye or compound eyes, which are called that because they are made up of repeating units called omatidia. So essentially, you have a lens, and that lens has its own cluster of visual cells, like some arrangement of a few or eight or so visual cells, the cells that actually sense the photons, and then they have their own nerve fibers coming out of that. So it's like a little unit that then gets repeated thousands of times in some insects. And each one essentially creates a pixel. So you have like a mosaic image uh, with each facet, each omatidia acting as a pixel, but the the brain still puts it together into one image. So they still see one of things. They're not seeing multiple repeated images as is often portrayed like in movies and whatnot. So that that's uh, just a myth, actually. Yeah, but Steve, but that one pixel... That one pixel, though, is not a, a subunit of the full image. It's a, it's a, it's the entire image. No, that's so. How, that's how the does myth. that become a pixel? No, that's the myth. That's not true. That's not how they work. They're always misrepresented. That's what I'm saying. Wow. Well, bumblebees have a special place in in the world of skepticism because certainly when we talk about bumblebees, what's the first thing you think of in terms of skepticism? Yeah, they, they can't, can't fly. fly. Science, can't science fly, says right? they can't fly because aerodynamics fl- can't figure it out. So, that's so, old news. So they hold this this, pl- this special place, I think, in, in skeptical circles, you know, as kind of being the a go-to example of how we really don't under, even though we don't understand how things happen, we can't say it's impossible, right? We just n- know that it's unexplained at the moment it's, and we have to do more science to eventually figure it out. And that's sort of a continuation of what we're delving into here with the latest research on bumblebees. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, though, the, the whole idea of bumblebees not being able to fly, that has been figured out. There is no, no aerodynamic mysteries anymore. We, That's right, but there used to be. The, no, no, there actually never used to be. It, it, it was, <laughs> never? Well, it was, it was never in, the case. in culture, but you know, if it, that's well, how it's, it's portrayed. That's, that's how the, the media point. or whatever you, you want to call it. There's a lot of mythology around there. bumblebees. Right. There's a lot of mythology, and that was like, that the notion that bumblebees can't fly scientifically or whatever that that's a myth. This is yes, but it's not a myth. But it's not a myth that it that it was mysterious how they generated enough lift and they figured that out when yes. they found these vortices that travel along the wings that create extra lower pressure above the wing so, and then that explained it. So it was mysterious. But the, you're right. It, they never said science says it's impossible, but it does it anyway. That There's never something existed. Almost scientists wing. said it. It's also <laughs> true, uh, nice, Jay. Bob, it's what, also Steve? true that bumblebee wing muscles. They're configured differently than mammalian muscles, and they're more efficient per cross-sectional area. So they okay. actually generate more strength for their size than we thought they would until we looked at their muscles. Oh, tiny little muscles. It's weird to think that, that insects have muscles, isn't it? I know, they're and, so And cool. cockles. Are they muscleoid, or are they actually like muscle no. tissue the way we know about it? They're, they're muscle you know tissues. They, they have nervous tissue, but they're like ganglia. They don't have brains. It's muscle. It's actin and myosin uh, arranged in a, in a way very similar to mammalian muscles, uh, although insect flight muscles are arranged in a more efficient pattern. More efficient? So they're yeah. stronger cool. than us. Which they're stronger. They take over. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they're taking over. Oh. Bumblebees can fly higher. Some bumblebee species can fly higher than Mount Everest. 
Whoa. Oh, you'd have gotten me on science or fiction with that one. You would have too. Yeah. You Ooh, you just wow. gave that away. Ah. All right, Jay. Jay, tell what? us what all the weird <laughs> stuff that's happening in our oceans. What's happening? Oh, this is really crazy, guys. Um, apparently, well, we don't know exactly what the causes are, but things have been observed in our oceans that we can't fully explain. So here is a list of sea creatures and the things that have been changing about them or things that we've observed that we can't fully wrap our heads around. So one thing, humpback whales. Bob, you know what a whale is, right? Yeah. <laughs> there would be whales here. <laughs> um, humpback whales that live in the Pacific Ocean typically travel south in the winter to find warmer waters. Now, if anyone has traveled to Hawaii... Go in there in January. Yeah, I don't know if January doesn't... No, I don't think that's the right time of year to see the whales because they... they come and they travel through the area that Hawaii is in, I think in the fall. Yeah, like whale October. season starting in LA here. Yeah, Like right. we're going means- whaling next month, I think, to go. Not whaling. Yeah. We're not killing whales, Jesus Christ. We're right. going out on a boat to look at <laughs> whales next month. <laughs> we're going to shoot whales with my camera. <laughs> so anyway, so after Kara is done slaughtering all these poor whales. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Like, what, the, like a the Japanese ones that are fisherman. left are going to go to Hawaii and they're going to tell everyone how much Kara sucks. But <laughs> but anyway, so the, the whales, um, they travel south to get to warmer waters because they like the water temperature to be pretty relative. And it's typical that um, that they make it down really far south. And oddly, this year, whales the whale surveys have shown that less than one-third of the expected number of whales showed up compared to a survey that was done in 2010. One-third the numbers. So I don't think um, anybody is saying, well, you know, are they dead? You know, what happened to all the whales? It's just that the, a lot of them aren't going as far south because they don't need to. Because and they it's also warmer have, where they are. Yeah, the, warmer, the water's warming up and they just don't have to go all the way down to Hawaii. So they also noticed that of the pods that they've observed, they noticed that there were less calves as well. Mm. And that's that's, that's kind of scary. Good. And yeah, that's sad. Now, you guys remember the whole starfish or the sea star um, like melting thing, right? You remember, remember mm-hmm. that they were dissolving? This was reported back in, I believe, around 2013. So th- this was due to a virus called Denzovirus. And Denzovirinae, Evan, are viruses um, mm-hmm. that are distinct in that they mostly infect invertebrates, either marine or terrestrial ecosystems. And the virus is really nasty, guys, because it, it actually Me. dissolves, you know, or, or it makes the starfish lose their limbs. So back in 2013, when this was hitting the Pacific coast really hard, um, what they found, though, is that recently starfish have been having a ton of babies. They're sea stars. A, Please yeah, don't say starfish. They're sea, sea stars. stars. I know. I corrected I corrected the articles that I was reading, but yes, I did say sea stars. If you paid attention to my earlier... I, I noticed it, Jay. I was very proud of you. I saw Thank stars. You. Thank you. Steve, these, these starfish have been hitting it hard. There's been <laughs> tons of baby starfish, and nobody knows why. I'm serious. And it's reported that there's 300 times the expected number of baby starfish. It's like jellyfish. And I just was thinking, yeah. you know, maybe the Jellies. warm water turns right. them on. You know, like That's maybe the, the hot water is just getting them all hot. And they're like, yo. And they're like, yeah, let's get it on. So anyway, uh-huh. I don't know, you Evan. Think that's, you think that's why? Yeah. Well, something is affecting them. So it's either that or it's or all the, the music that we're something. pouring into the ocean. Yeah. Or it could be that a lot of their predators are being killed off because they can't survive the heat or the acidity. 
Yeah. Or because there's no there's no sea stars to eat, so the predators die off, and now all the young exactly. ones are surviving. Yeah. Or, or may, maybe mm. it's interesting other hypothesis. I don't know if there's anything to this that they may know that the populations are really down in some way, and then they may send signals to to be hyper prolific. I actually pulled the the study that demonstrated that the Densovirus was causing the. Uh, wasting disease. I just want to read you the first couple sentences. Tell me if you notice anything. Populations of at least 20 asteroid species. Isn't that cool? That's what they're called, asteroid. Cool. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Of the Northeast Pacific Coast have recently experienced an extensive outbreak of sea star wasting disease. The disease leads to behavioral changes, lesions, loss of turgor, limb autotomy, and death characterized by rapid degradation, and then in quotation marks, melting. Yeah. Um, that's in the mm. that's in the scientific paper. Did you notice anything else in that sentence? Autotomy. 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 Oh. And we didn't even notice because now I that we notice. know what it means, we just Gosh, processed it. Isn't like that funny? I just learned <laughs> totally. the word. Yes. And now a week later, I'm reading it in a technical paper. And you own it like that. it's yours, Steve. All right, to continue. I, re- I really wish I remembered what it meant. Up. <laughs> to continue. <laughs> Autotomy is when a creature... Uh, drops a limb, basically. It's kind of self-surgery. It translates to self-surgery, but really it's, yeah, limb dropping. So they're dropping their arms off, the sea stars. They should come up with a term similar to that about name dropping. (laughs) Uh, Bob, cephalopods. Have you heard of cephalopods? No, cephalopods. 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 Now, who were the cephalopods? Where isn't that the... uh, the, Boy bands. No, they're related to Zaphod Beeblebrooks. What were the Transformers called? <laughs> the Cephalotrons Decepticons? or Decepticons. Decepticons. Cephalotrons. The Cephalotrons. Okay. The Decepticons and the Autobots. And the Autobots. The Cephalopods, <laughs> as you know, these are octopuses, cuttlefishes, and uh-huh. squiddies. 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 It's a, pl- it's a plural of squids. These creatures have been apparently having a lot of successful sex as well. I told you it's the freaking... Temperature of the water. Over the past 60 years, a huge population growth has been happening in, in the cephalopods. Some theories are that warm waters could affect their life cycle. You see, I was right. And these animals are filling holes made from overfishing and other holes as well. <laughs> because nature <laughs> abhors a void. He was so excited for I'm that sorry. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't even write that down. It was just right off the top of my head. Anyway, <laughs> continuing on. Two more Calamari. things, guys. Yep. Uh, the the Dungeness crab. You ever hear of the Dungeness crab? I've heard of the Dungeness and Dragons crab too. That's right. Nineteen ninety eight, a ton of sea lions started dying on the coast of California because they were eating a crab who ended up becoming toxic. So the dun- toxic. The Dungeness crab was poisoned pretty much by the weather. Check this out. The non typical weather patterns caused warm water in the Pacific Ocean, which spawned a rapid growth of algae, and the algae was toxic. The crabs ate the algae, and then they became toxic, and then the sea lions ate the crabs, and a ton of them died. Jesus, that's so sad. Yep, Ooh. and that's because of, definitely because of rising temperatures. There's the food chain in action gone and awry. One last thing. Coral. Globally, over the past year, scientists oh. are observing that coral has been turning white. Now, by the way, I'm not talking about the kid who plays Rick's son on The Walking Dead. I don't get it because I don't watch da, that da, show. Da, 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 Coral. That's how he says his name. Coral. 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 <laughs> get over here, Coral. Coral, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Wow, one freaking Walking Dead watcher. All right, so it. they call it coral bleaching. I'm sure you guys have heard of this. And what it means is that the warming oceans have been causing the coral to shed the algae that gives them their color. So when you see coral reef and you see the bright colors, that's because they're covered in, in the 
this algae, and each algae is different in different colors, right? The problem is that the coral polyps, which are the creatures that actually make the coral skeleton, they eat the algae. All right, so the problem is that the coral the coral polyps are the creatures that actually make the coral skeleton. And the algae that lives on and in them is shedding essentially the food that they eat. So when the algae, because of the water temperature increase, when the algae disconnects from the coral polyps, the coral dies because it doesn't have anything to eat. And that's it. That's what coral. That's what the coral bleaching is. It's the algae like de- decoupling from the coral, and they have a symbiotic yeah. relationship. And neither one can really live without the other. So the two creatures die, and there you go. And, our, and that's why. And our then coral everything dies. Yeah, yeah, everything dies when the coral dies. Now, to be fair, a lot of damage to coral reefs is also done by by visitors, by people stepping on them, touching them, yeah, touching them. off. Um, it's really bad to touch a coral reef. Apparently, like, you know, even just your finger could do some serious damage to it. So please, guys, anybody, like, how about just don't go visit them for 10 years and let, let's have some regrowth and hopefully, you know, we'll rebound. Uh, but they're pretty. I don't think, I don't know if they'll be there in 10 years. I mean, the Great Barrier oh Reef lost what, lost, what, 70% of its mass? What? This, what? Since yeah, when? Um, I'm looking it up. So let me add a couple details, Jay. So the, the uh, coral... When it when it bleaches, when it expels the algae and it then it turns white, it's not dead at that point, but it is under a lot of stress and it is in trouble, and a lot of coral will die after and because of the bleaching event. But they, but some survive. There are some robust coral that will survive a bleaching event, and, and so in a way, like the most robust coral survives these events. But of course, if it's, it's selection pressure, if it's stressful enough, you know, it could really cause a, a huge die off. The other thing that's interesting is like, so the question is, is now the stress in this situation that we're seeing now is because of warming water. And that warming water is probably partly due to global warming, but it's also caused by El Nino. So they mm-hmm. knew this was going to happen. They predicted this a year ago. They said, oh, El Nino is going to warm the water, the waters and we're going to have a coral bleaching event. And we did. So this was completely predicted. It's 35% coral death in the Great Barrier Reef right now, which has led to, I can't find the exact number of like all of the other organisms that are dying as a result of that. But 35% in this coral bleaching event specifically. Coral coral shelters 25% of marine species. Oh. I mean, that's that's, that's unbelievable. it's, It's like the coral reef is the rainforest of the sea. Yeah. Right. Like it really has Gosh. some of the most biodiversity of all of the oceans. All right, Jay, we are way behind on who's that noisy. It's been weeks. So behind that I had to ask oh. Steve, what was the last noisy I played? I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, I hope I'm playing the right one. And here is the one that I played last time. God, that is such a cool sound. It is. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's a Jedi musical. temple or something. So, <laughs> guys, unbelievable stuff here. So when you take an audio recording and you compress it using an MP3, data uh, that is considered by the algorithm to be to be audible is put into the output file, right? That's the MP3 file. Everything else that that algorithm judges as something that you don't need to hear, it throws it away. 
Oh. So imagine instead of taking the MP3, which is the file that you, you end up with, if you recorded the sounds that were left over that the algorithm de- essentially deletes or gets rid of. That sound that I played is what's left over after you make an MP3 file. It's in a way, it's like the ghost sound of the MP3s that we create. It's the and it sounds like ghosts. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's and all every the stuff song that gets thrown away. Yep, and every song is different. Every song would have a different sound there. And I, I just find that there's something just cool all by itself. I'd like to listen to them. I'd like to hear more of those. Wait, which song was that? Mm. That was Tom's Diner. You know who that's Tom's from? Diner. No. You know that song? That like, uh, yeah. Emma standing was, in the corner. Yep, minute, that song. Minute, 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 I thought it was the, under, the underdog theme song. No, 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 Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a really hearty laugh. I liked that laugh. Um, <laughs> chortle, chortle, chortle. And I had, uh, you know what? I, uh, a lot of people guessed that one correctly. And Did I, they guess the right song? Really? No, yeah, actually, a couple of people did. Um, so they must I'm have so heard it. Sorry to those people that guessed right that I, I don't have the name of the person that got it first because you know we had like three weeks since we recorded last and um, thankless. I'll tell you what. Try again. Just try I'll this. Tell one. you what. I'll tell you what. Now check this one out. This is one of my favorites so far this year. I don't say that that often. I think this is a fantastic noisy. This one was sent in by Waitama Worth. Oh, that's. I a, liked that. That's a prawn like from it. District Nine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a cool sound, isn't it? Yeah. Do me a favor. First, if you come mm. across any cool sounds in your life, people are actually recording things for me that they hear at their job. Uh, one guy was cooking spaghetti and literally recorded a weird noise that his pot was making. Do it. Just send it in. You never know. It might it might be something that I, I think is you know valuable enough to share with everyone. So please send those in and your guesses to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Cool, Jay. Thanks. Kara, can I ask you a question? Yes. What's the word? Word. Uh, the word. I'm excited. Word. The word this week is a fun one, and it was um, recommended by a listener named Kohotech. Something tells me that's not your real name from Denver, Colorado. Maybe it is. And Kohotech says that he or she learned the word touring the Theo Chocolate Factory in Seattle. Isn't it Kohotech? Are... Is it Kohotech? I think it's not Kohotech. 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 That does ring a bell. What's where have we heard know. that? Kuhu. It's like an Egyptian god or something, right? That's El Hepatep. That's, that's uh, Imhotep. Imhotep, yeah. I'm, I don't know. Like, that's the only one? It might one. be. No, yes, that is the only one. <laughs> it's the only one. it's the only one I've heard of, it's the only yeah. one that exists. The cat um, god. So the word is cauliflory. Oh, perfect. Who's Who has, like, an old-school rotary phone? What was that? Yeah, what the hell? Bob? I don't know. My phone is on silent, and it was an alarm. Okay, it when said, I looked up <laughs> Kohotek, is it K-O-H-O-U-T-E-K? K-O-U-H-O-U-T-E-K is how oh. they spelled it. But yeah, it's probably supposed to be that. Weird. It was Comet Kohotek. That's what you remember. Yes! 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 Damn, oh. that's way cooler. Uh, Kohotek, first sighted you're my in hero. March 1973 by Czech astronomer Lubos Kohotek. Cool. Oh, is, that, is, is that who wrote this? <laughs> 
Yeah, from Denver now. <laughs> He's relocated <laughs> to Denver. <laughs> um, so, Cahotec, uh, while you were touring this chocolate factory, you came across the word cauliflory. And cauliflory is a noun. It's used in botany, and it refers to the production of flowers or fruits directly from the branches or trunks of plants. Cool. And we often find uh, cauliflory in tropical locations. Interestingly, as pointed out by Cahotec, Cauliflower is not truly cauliflorous. Now, in most plants, flowers or fruits develop on new growth. So these new little terminal branches that often have young stems on them and are leafy. Uh, but in a truly cauliflorous plant, they grow on the trunks themselves or on old dormant branches. And there are about 100 different species of true cauliflorous plants. And as the etymology, um, as the name really implies, that, that is the etymology. It literally translates from the Latin collis, meaning stem, and florus, meaning flower. So, of course, you can see how cauliflower would arise similar to cauliflory, even though the cauliflower plant is not truly a cauliflorous plant, but it is still stem and flower being utilized together to form that word. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I like botany words. We don't do enough botany words. Uh, I did notice that I know a lot more about animals and plants, and I've tried to shore up my botany knowledge. Like I could pretty much go through like all the the orders of mammals and things like that, but I have no idea like what the, all the different categories of of plants are. To the same, plants you know, to- are hard, and yeah. plant genetics is really hard because plants have so many genes and they're not just like haploid they have they can have like four or or six they can have like multiple pairs of genes and it's it's and plants have sex in weird ways and they don't always have sex and it's very complicated i i definitely respect all the botanists listening to the show right now it's it's tough and you get a bad rap nobody takes the plant physiology class they always go for animal phys don't know why. Because uh, we're biased. Because yeah, we're closer. Yeah. <laughs> closer exactly. <cousin. laughs> that would make sense, huh? Well, guys, let's move on to science fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week, but I'm not going to tell you what the theme is because it doesn't really matter. See if you can mm. figure out what it is once I read to the items. It's actually not that hard. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Yes. Hmm. Item number one. Belgium researchers have developed a technique for using ultrasound to evaluate the quality of chocolate while it is being produced. Item number two. American researchers report a case in which they implanted a computer chip into the brain of a stroke patient, which stimulates the pathways necessary for leg movements and improved the patient's ability to walk. And item number three, Japanese researchers were able to generate a continuous current from the electric organ of an electric ray, which they hope to develop into a source of usable electricity. Oh, man. Kara, why don't you go first? <laughs> Belgium researchers have developed a technique for using ultrasound to evaluate the quality of chocolate while it's being produced. Seems reasonable, probably science. American researchers report a case in which they implanted a computer chip into the brain of a stroke patient, which stimulates the pathways necessary for leg movements and improve the patient's ability to walk. Also seems reasonable. Might be science. Uh, 
I've seen like TDCS used for this and magnetic stimulation used for this. I don't know about the implanted part. That's the question. Japanese researchers able to generate a continuous current from the electric organ of an electric ray, which they hope to develop into a source of usable energy. Do electric rays have an electric organ? Yeah, it's not like it doesn't play music or anything. Uh-oh. No, I know. <laughs> it's not like you're at a baseball game, Kara. Is, is it a physical organ or is it some sort of like, I don't know, not sensor, but the opposite of sensor on some sort of, you know, on the tail or something? I don't know. They all seem really reasonable, Steve. This is a really hard one this week. I'm going to say that the fiction is the American researchers and the implanted computer chip. Alrighty, Bob. Um, let's see. <clears throat> Ultrasound to evaluate quality of chocolate. Why the hell not? What's not to be okay about? Nothing there right. is like raising red flags, which means I hate it. Um, <laughs> now let's see. Uh, go, let me go to three here. The continuous current, current from an electric organ of an electric ray. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess. Sure. That's, I'm not too familiar with this uh, so-called electric organ you uh, talk about here, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the problem I have is with the Im- implanted computer chip. I just think that the the pathways that need to be stimulated for any type of movement would be a little too complicated at this point in time. It's really complex. It's not like you just you know stimulate these neurons and you're good. I mean, it's a it's a coordinated stimulation of of specific pathways. Walking is fiendishly complex. Uh, now, of course, the fact that you say that it improved the patient's ability to walk kind of attenuates that a bit. Like if you said it made him walk, I'd I'd totally call bullshit on that one. But that kind of makes it, yeah, maybe they could improve it. But I'm still going to say that this one is fiction. Okay, Jay. Okay. So this the one about the researchers using ultrasound for – chocolate production so you know if they're going to use an ultrasound machine for something like this it would have to be like in a well okay it's just belgium researchers so they're just doing research i get it i'm not this isn't in a factory setting sure okay researchers decided to point an ultrasound machine at, at chocolate to see if it could help in chocolate production weird but something that the belgium people would do okay the second one here about the implanting the computer chip to help a stroke patient um, all right, so this does make sense. The, the chip stimulates a pathway in the brain, and it could help improve the patient's ability to walk. Sure, I could see you know, stimulation. So it's probably just doing some type of electrical stimulation, and the chip is probably detecting something that's going on in the brain so it knows when to do the stimulation. So yeah, okay. I mean, it sounds a little cyborgery, but you know, I think we're there for stuff like that. And they said it reports a case in which, not cases, or this is the new way to do it. They, they, you know, they're testing. That makes a lot of sense. And this last one here about the Japanese researchers who have ripped an organ out of Cthulhu and are now using it for, <laughs> for biological combat. Highly doubt this one. Yeah, I, I didn't like this one from the moment I heard it. So here's what I don't like about it. They generate a continuous current from the electric organ of an electric ray. Highly doubt that they can figure out a way to make an organ which can only do jolts of electricity, which I think has to be built up over time to do continuous, you know, making a continuous current because you got to think of it this way. I don't know much about the animal, but is the the electric 
the electric ray is probably generating the electricity and it's not just collecting it from the atmosphere that it's it's in it could but even still it's either doing it via it's it's creating the electricity by some biological thing from food or it's collecting the electricity as it's gliding through the water either way they couldn't i don't think that they could figure out a way to make that organ just continuously pump out electricity and then to develop it into a source of usable electricity utterly ridiculous because you're pe- you're putting energy into it to get energy out of it. So is it's that ridiculous, the, the whole thing. That's the fiction. Asshole. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evan. I'll just say this first about the Belgium and the chocolate. Um, so any listeners in Belgium, you need to, you know, I, I know Belgium is famous for their chocolate. And, you know, uh, but I would like some evidence and proof of that. So feel free to. Uh, Me too. Yeah. Send, a, send along. Do a chocolate study. We really need. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we need some uh, samples to. Uh, to help with this study, so... Uh, but absolutely. don't send us the machine. We don't care about the ultrasound machine at all. No. <laughs> Prefer- preferably send the chocolate with peanut butter. No, orange chocolate. <laughs> Ooh, Milk chocolate or dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. Caramel. Really Caramel and salt, please. Yeah, sea salt? Everything, sea everything salt? is sea yeah, salt, as, as if it's much better No, I want iodized salt. salt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that one's uh, science. <laughs> At least I think it is. <laughs> Ultrasound, sure, why not? And I, I, it's between the stroke patient and the electric ray. Uh, based on sort of the conversations I heard, I know it's kind of a cop-out way to go, but I am going to go with it. I'm going to say that the stroke patient one, based on what I heard my cohorts say, uh, is going to be the fiction. Okay, so you all agree with the first one. So we'll start there. Belgian researchers have developed a technique for using ultrasound to evaluate the quality of chocolate while it is being produced. You all think that one is science. For this one, I'm going to read you guys the headlines of the relevant story. The headline says, Belgian researchers check quality of chocolate with ultrasound. This one is science. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) A headline that actually... (laughs) But act, but they they weren't looking at the chocolate. They were they said they were using this to develop the process. They haven't developed it yet. They actually were just looking at the cocoa butter, not the full chocolate yet. But that's oh. what they're. There was a proof of concept. Uh, oh, of course. Whatever. Now the the cocoa butter crystallizes as the liquid chocolate hardens. Right, the uh-huh. cocoa butter in the chocolate, and there are five types of crystals. And in order to get the best chocolate, you mm-hmm. want the best, the correct kind of crystals to form the number size shape and the way the which the way the crystals stick together is important to the mouthfeel and the quality and the taste of the chocolate all right so my question at this point is how close are we right now without with conventional techniques are we 90 percent of the way there which means that this would be only a little bit of an improvement or are we like 50 percent of the the way there which means that in the future we could have chocolate that's twice as good as we have now so i hate Mm. to disappoint you but i don't think this will produce better chocolate It'll oh. just reduce the cost of making the chocolate as good oh, as it is. Oh, screw that. So right now what they do is they, they make the chocolate and then they send off a sample for examination. And if it isn't good, they either scrap it or remake it or whatever. And that's very slow and, and cost prohibitive. But this way, if they use ultrasound, they could do that while it's forming and they'll know if it's forming properly right at the time so it will save a lot of time and money uh, theoretically if they could bring this to you know full scale right. you know utility in actual chocolate making again this was they're developing the process so uh, yeah cheaper so cheaper chocolate i could see that but cheaper still, man, great, make it better great chocolate yeah 
Well, yeah, maybe it'll make, make it, maybe it'll contribute to making it better sure. too. Who knows? There it, you yeah, go, sounds Bob. Like it could. Yeah. Sounds like it could. Yeah, it's always hope, ultrasound Bob. to see the different crystalline structures within the cocoa butter. Very interesting. Okay, let's go on to number two. Uh oh, Bob, uh, Evan, and Kara think this one is the fiction. Uh-huh. Jade thinks this one is science. Uh-huh. American researchers report a case in which they implanted a computer chip into the brain of a stroke patient, which stimulates the pathways necessary for lake movements and improved the patient's ability to walk. Let me read you the actual headline. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Implanted neuroprosthesis improves walking ability in stroke patient. <laughs> this Wah-wah. one is still the fiction. Yay! <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. She had to do that psych on you guys because they didn't implant it in the brain. They implanted it in oh, the they muscles. It in the leg. Yeah, I was ah. going to say the muscles. Oh, bullshit. The muscles would have a big, big so part of this. It, we aren't quite there yet doing this at the brain level. As Bob, I said. Bob's instinct was correct. Although it may not be as difficult as you think it is. Sometimes just activating a circuit may be enough to make it function better. You don't have to like get really complicated. In other words, like the, the complexity is already is still there in the brain circuitry, and you're just sort of making it function a little bit more robustly by stimulating kick it. Kickstart, uh, rather than replacing the circuitry with the, all the complexity that it entails. That's definitely a, with a computer chip. We're definitely a ways off from that. What they did, and this has been done in in before. This is not this is not totally new. Is they implanted electrodes in uh, the muscles that are involved with walking in the legs, and then they they stimulate them in the proper sequence to generate the action. Of walking still not e- yeah not, not easy so when first evaluated he could walk only 76 meters before becoming fatigued after training but without stimulation he could walk about 300 meters with stimulation the patient's maximum walking distance increased to more than 1400 meters damn so yeah so it significantly increased so it's basically activating the muscles for him so he could walk a little bit more efficiently and not get tuckered out as, as much uh, and could walk nearly twice as fast they said that's impressive. Yeah. But I, and I've seen this before, like with external devices, you know, that stimulate the muscles directly and people with spinal cord injuries or strokes or whatever. And it takes a lot of training, but some people can learn to walk with this kind of artificial stimulation. It's very cool. Yeah, cool. All of this means that Jay was wrong. That Japanese <laughs> researchers were able to generate a continuous current from the electric organ of an electric ray which they hope to develop into a source of usable electricity, is science. Now, Jay, you did hit upon of the key, I think, to this news item, and, and this was the key to this research, which was getting the organ that generates a jolt of electricity to produce it continuously. That was the, really the breakthrough here. So you were correct in identifying that. Now, the, the, the creature is called a torpedo, and it is a an electric ray, but the specific species is called the torpedo. Now, the, their normal jolts are 10 milliseconds. They generate a 10 millisecond pulse of current with a peak voltage of 19 volts and a current of 8 amps. What they did was remove the electric organ from the torpedo, and then they chemically stimulated it by injecting a solution of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine into the organ. And they, by doing this, they were able to achieve more than a minute of continuous current with a peak of 91 millivolts and 0.25 milliamps. So voltage, yeah, voltage of 91 millivolts and a, and a current of 0.25 milliamps. So that's a small amount of electricity, but they were able to generate it continuously for greater than a minute. So they say by increasing the number of syringes, they were able to increase it to 1.5 volts 
and 0.64 milliamps. Um, and they're hoping to, those famous words, scale this up. Oh, it's yeah. Always the rub. Uh, but, they, but their hope is uh, to develop future high-efficiency power generators that use ATP directly in order to generate electricity. ATP, of course, adenosine triphosphate. That's yeah. the energy currency of living things. So who knows if this will pan out, if we'll be running our computers in our homes off of electric eels, electric I rays. I still don't believe it. Well, that's you know, they may not pan out, but that's what they did. They may be able to generate continuous current, and, and the purpose of their research is to develop power generator efficiency. Uh-huh, they say now. Yeah. They want to make Godzilla. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no, Gamera. I think they're looking for Gamera. Gamera! Yeah, All right, so I lost again is what you're saying. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Damn. But congratulations, but only guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Whatever. That was a fun yeah, one. Baby. And the theme, of course, was oh. international. It was just they all were what? from a specific different country. Oh, oh I see. That's how you go. American <laughs> researchers report a case. Okay. I thought the theme was, I'm going to read you the headlines. Well, that was the sub-theme. <laughs> I, I, I only did that because I wanted to psych you on the, the headline. Yeah, for the you got three. us good, boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you know, I read that. I'm like, really? Where did they implant these uh, electrodes? And then it's like, okay, oh, it's in the muscles, I see. Marshalls. Yeah. <laughs> Evan, do you have a quote for us this week? If you're not comfortable with the unknown, then it's difficult to be a scientist. I don't need an answer. I don't need answers to everything. I want to have answers to find. The incomparable Brian Cox. Yo, Brian. Very good. Nice. Love nice Brian Cox. All right. Well, thank you, Evan. That was a good quote. Hey, Steve. Yes. I just want to show thank you for this show. <laughs> oh, <laughs> F. <laughs> Thank F you very you. much. <laughs> no redemption there. Homemade merd. <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining me this week. Sure, Steve. That yeah, was fun. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.